Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. We are going to be looking today, we're we're doing just one more week that's not part of a series, uh, though it's kind of an introduction to a series that will be coming up in July. Uh, And I'll explain that in a few minutes. Uh, We're going to be looking at Jude chapter 1, the first four verses. There's actually only one chapter in Jude, so it's the first four verses in the book of Jude. And uh, I'm calling it Contending for the True Faith. You'll see why I've given it that title in just a few moments. So as always, the verses will be up here on the screen that I've used this morning. The main verses are there in your welcome booklet. And as you can see, uh, we were able to overcome the, uh, compu- the printer problems from last week, and so Stephanie uh, was able to get the booklet out again. And so you can follow along, uh, and again, follow along in your Bibles. I encourage you, uh, as that's part of what we're talking about this morning, we need to uh, understand and know the faith and study it on our own. So as always, take this and uh, study it as you go home. So let's hear now the word of the sovereign God. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and are kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our Lord of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. One of my uh, heroes in the history of the church was a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was an Egyptian. He lived in Alexandria in the early and mid-300s. And when Athanasius was a young man, he went to the first great council that the church called in Nicaea in 325. And this council was called because a a church leader in Egypt uh, named Arius had been changing what Christians had believed. And he started saying that Jesus was not actually God, but rather Jesus was a created being. And Athanasius was just a young leader there. He was not influential. He didn't even really get the vote at Nicaea. He was kind of the secretary to the bishop that was from uh, Alexandria. But at Nicaea, by an overwhelming vote, the bishops of the church said, no, what the church has believed, that we've always believed, is that Jesus is God. And he's not a created being. And so they actually wrote what became known as the Nicene Creed there at that. And so it seemed like the question had been settled. Unfortunately, however, as oftentimes uh, becomes the case, politics intervened. And over the ensuing 50 years or so, many of the emperors that came up sided with the Arians against Orthodox Christianity. And sad to say, many bishops caved because they said, well, I would rather be unpopular with the guy who's in power. I would rather, you know, I want some political position and power. And so they compromised the faith to do that, but not Athanasius. Athanasius stood every time and said, no, 
Jesus is God. And it does not matter if the emperor says he's not. It does not matter if a whole bunch of other bishops say he's not. He is God. And if we lose this, we've lost the faith. So not once, not twice, six times Athanasius was exiled from the Roman Empire in large part. I mean, he got sent away. Six times this happened. Now, as a result, and sadly Athanasius did not see it, and he, he had written the, what's become the classic work uh, on it about Jesus being God, uh, on the incarnation it's called. It's a great uh, work of Athanasius. Athanasius, after he dies, the true faith does finally went out, and Arianism is stamped out once and for all, the church embraces the true Orthodox faith. And Athanasius' epitaph, by which he has been known through succeeding ages, is Athanasius contramundum, which is a Latin phrase that means against the world. Because Athanasius said, I will stand if the whole world goes on one side and says Jesus is not God, I will stand. Here I stand, I can do no other, to use Luther's phrase. And thanks be to God that Athanasius did stand. Because the gospel depends on that truth. He was not just being a contrarian. He was not just wanting to pick a fight. This was essential belief. So we today want to talk about this need for us. Are we willing to be like Athanasius? Would we be willing to have written on our uh, grave, you know, Brett, contramundum, against the world? It would not matter what the cost was. Are we willing to? To do that, will we be willing to say it does not matter that those who are in power now say this? I have to stand for the faith. That's the call that Jude gives us in this text. Now, before Jude issues the call, and it's important, I do this each week, we should notice Jude begins with gospel resources for our fight. He does not begin with the fight, he begins with the gospel. Now he does this, there's a couple of interesting things here. So notice in the very first verse, he says, Jude, a servant of uh, Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So this is his greeting, it's very typical in the Greek. But I want you to notice, he, he identifies himself as two things. A servant, or the word means slave as well, doulos, is both servant or slave, because they were basically the same thing in the Roman Empire, and a brother of James. So we're going to come back to the servant of Jesus Christ in a minute. He starts by saying he's the brother of James. Now this James, whenever James is identified in the New Testament without like James the brother of John or James the son of Zebedee, it's talking about the James who became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. This James was actually the brother of Jesus. In Galatians 1.19, Paul refers to him this way. Paul says, I saw none of the other apostles, only James the Lord's brother. Now what that means, of course, is then who's Jude? He's Jesus's physical brother, is who he is. Notice he's listed in Matthew 13, 55. This is where the people are getting offended at what Jesus is doing, and they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James? Notice James is listed as the oldest of his other brothers. Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Unless you wonder, that's the exact same name in Greek. We just called the book Jude, but it's the exact same name. It's Judas uh, in Greek. So notice he's listed here as doing it. So, so what's going on is Jude is making reference to, if you want to know which Jude I am, because it's a common name, I'm the Jude whose brother is James, the James, the one in Jerusalem, the well-known James. 
But what's interesting is he doesn't say, yeah, I grew up with Jesus. When, when he was learning carpentry, I, I was there. When we sat around and learned prayers, I was there. When we talked about the I was there with him. Jude makes no reference to that. And in fact, James never does either. Only Paul references that James is Jesus' brother. James does not anywhere in his letter say, hey, I'm the physical brother of Jesus. They never use that fact to give themselves recognition of power. But there's a second and even more important reason he doesn't do that here. And that's the other title. What Jude wants to be known as is not the brother of Jesus, but the slave of Jesus. The slave of Jesus Christ. So notice here he, he identifies himself that this is important. Now, and I want you to think for just a second. How many of you in here have got siblings? Who would identify yourself as I am the slave of? Now, I mean, like my sister, I'm sure, would gladly do that, right? She would say it's a worthy title. And anybody who knows my sister knows far better. She might actually listen to the teaching today just so she can rebut it. This is not an easy title, but that's what he does. Now, this title is rich, and it has a lot of meanings. Again, the word can mean servant or slave. It's the same word. There is no distinction in it at all. And in the Old Testament, it was used of great men of God. For example, Abraham's called the servant of God. Moses is called the servant of God. Uh, David is called the servant of God. And so that they are the slaves of God, but it's also a title of honor because it means when you are the, the slave or the servant of the one true high God, you are his authorized representative, is what it meant. And this was taken over in the New Testament, and so it's a very common title that church leaders in the New Testament have. For example, Paul begins a number of letters this way. I'll just show one. In Romans 1.1, we read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, or a slave. And in some of your English translations, in some books, it'll actually say a slave or a bond servant. Again, it's all the same word, okay? He's a servant or slave of Jesus Christ. But it's not just the apostles. In Colossians 4.12, Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling for you in prayer. Epaphras was a church leader in Colossae that had been sent to Paul in prison to, to serve him and to be there with him as a leader from Colossae. And he's still serving as a leader among the Colossians. He's praying for them. Paul says he's wrestling in prayer and contending for you all in prayer. And he's a servant of Christ Jesus. So church leaders like Moses and David were given this title as saying that's a special thing. But it's not only church leaders are called that. The title is given to every believer in Jesus Christ. We are all called slaves of Jesus. Notice a couple of places. First Peter 2.16. Peter says, and notice here the, the metaphor they keep using, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants, or if you will, slaves for God. You're, you've been freed, but you've become God's slave. That's what you're to be. In Romans 6.22, but now that you've been set free from sin, you were slaves to sin, but now you've been liberated from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And then, of course, the next verse, the wages of sin is death, 
The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when God sets you and I free from sin and you are no longer a slave to sin, that does not mean you have no master. It means your master is now Jesus Christ. And so Jude, what he's telling us here is, this is the ultimate reality. It does not matter that I am the blood brother of Jesus Christ. That's not what's important. What is important is, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He's my master. That is my identity. And it is also the identity of every Christian. The most important statement that can be made about you, the most fundamental fact in your life, if you are a Christian, is you are a slave to Jesus Christ, not to anyone else. To Jesus Christ, you are his slave. And anything else that may be true of you, whatever your education level, whatever position you might hold in this uh, life, whatever your socioeconomic status, none of those define who you are. Servant of Jesus Christ defines who you are. And if it does not, friends, there is something highly defective in our faith. So Jude begins with this for us right up front. He's setting this in and saying, look, before I tell you why you got to contend for the faith, here's the number one reason, because you're a slave. And if Jesus sends you to battle, to battle you go, because you're not your own. And we'll come back to that and see in a few minutes. Now, he also gives us some gospel realities and blessings. So notice it's Jude is writing, and he says, here's who I'm writing to. To those who are called and who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. And then he gives another triad, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So notice there's these two triads. First, there's a triad of gospel realities. If you are a Christian, here's what is true of you. This is your identity. Before the world was created, you were called by God. Before you had come to be, you were loved by God. And as long as this age shall exist, you will be kept by God. The phrase kept by Jesus Christ actually is making reference when you come to the end of Jude, he gives this great doxology. He's talking about you're kept until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not just that Jesus' power holds you. It will hold you until Jesus returns. From eternity past to eternity future, you are called, you are loved, you are kept. That's who you are. Now that's good news if you're going into battle. I, I like going into battle knowing what is mine. And then Jude says, as if that's not enough, here's the prayer I give you. Let me say even before I go to that prayer, it's also pointed out that these phrases were used a lot in Isaiah 40 to 55. When Isaiah is prophesying, remember Isaiah 40 begins with comfort, comfort my people. They are often, they're going to be in exile. They're going to be gone. It's going to appear that everything has fallen apart. The world is against them. All of my promises have failed, but I want you to know, no, Israel, you are called you are loved and you are kept. And Jude now says those realities of Israel and exile are true for you, the true Israel, the church of God, who are in exile wherever you are, but you have been called, loved, and kept. Secondly, there's another triad, which is mercy, peace, and love. This is gospel blessings that we have. 
through the gospel, we have received and we are filled with mercy to forgive our sins. We are filled with peace with God. We have shalom with God. And we have love through God. God's saving love is given to us. And notice he says, these are not ours in small measure. They are yours in abundance. Or one translation says, they are multiplied to you. This is the reality. If you are a Christian, your life is saturated. You are soaked daily with mercy, peace, and love. Called from eternity past, loved by God in the present, kept until eternity in the future, and in between you are filled with mercy, peace, and love. That's who you are. That, that's good. That's nice to know that God has done that, and that is our reality, and it's the foundation of who we are. So you've got to understand that, you've got to meditate on it, you've got to live in that before you go to contention, because contending for the faith can make it seem like you're just some kind of a nasty person who likes to fight, and there are Christians that are that way, but that's not a spiritual fruit, okay? That, that's a sin of the flesh, okay? This is who we are. And it's out of this because, as Myrtle was just saying a couple of minutes ago, this reality is the only way to know God. There is no other path. Friends, you and I, apart from Christ, are not called, are not loved, are not the people of God, are not kept, are headed for destruction. We are not under mercy. We have not received mercy. That's the, the play on words that Hosea uses. Remember, you have the two kids. One is named not loved, and the other is not my people. What terrible names. I mean, but that's what God told them to do. But then God says, but now you are loved, and you are my people. And Peter picks that up, and that's who you are. In Christ Jesus. But what that means is the gospel that is the only access to that cannot be compromised. It cannot be given up. And so Jude says because you are this people, you have a call. And that call is you must contend for the true faith. Notice in verse 3, Jude says, look, I was going to write a letter and keep talking about what I just explained to you. I was going to write about the salvation that we share. And so he says, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about this salvation that we share, something else came up. So I wanted to spend time doing that. I, I wanted my whole teaching to be on that. But it's not. Because something else has happened, and here's what's happened. I had to write you and urge you to contend for the faith. Now, contend is an athletic term. We actually get, ultimately, our word agonize, okay? But it's not talking about a, a, agony. We think of being as a, a, like, emotional term. What it really is is it's the strength of struggle that you're going into. He says you're going to be like an athlete in the, in the ring, and you have to struggle and fight and do not give up. You want the crown, and you have to fight so that the faith will not be corrupted. And notice here that this argument is about the faith. Now, the question would be, very often when we say faith, we're thinking of my subjective response to the gospel. Okay, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes or everyone who has faith. But that's not what Jude means here. He's not talking about my subjective response to the gospel. He is talking about the objective gospel, core essential Christian beliefs, 
and core moral teachings of the way you and I are called to live. And I'll explain why it is both of those things. Notice here why I'm saying this. He says you have to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He he doesn't say you have to contend to keep your faith in the face of the battles against it. You're kept by Jesus Christ. You have to turn and apply your energy to contend for the faith that was given to all the saints. Not what's in you, but what's given to all the saints. It is therefore corporate. What he's talking about is not individual. My faith, I can't be saved by somebody else's faith. That's my subjective response to the gospel. That's not what he's got in view. He's got in view something that is corporate. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Thirdly, if you notice that phrase, Faith, the subjective faith, arises from within me in response to the gospel. He's not talking about something that arises from within me. It's something that's been handed down to me. It has been entrusted to me. It is something that has come from the apostles and is handed down to believers across all generations. So clearly what Jude is speaking of here is not my belief, but rather the Christian faith, what we believe, and therefore out of that how we are called to act. Now, this is not unknown in the New Testament at all. In fact, it appears in a number of places in the New Testament. For example, in one of the earliest writings in all the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this, Galatians 1.23, they had only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Okay, the faith that he once tried to destroy is Christianity. That's what Paul's talking about. That's how he's using the term. So it's not like Jews come up with something new. Christians had always referred to it as the faith. Furthermore, you can look in Acts 6, 7. Again, in the very early church, this is actually from before Paul was even saved. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. They were embracing core essential Christian doctrine regarding who Jesus is, who we are, how we're saved, and they are embracing the implications of how that means they live. So this is what it's called. Now, this is important because, see, the first thing heretics always try to do is say, well, you have your faith, I have mine. There are many faiths. No, there's not. There is one faith. One true faith that has been given by God to his people, and they are to embrace, protect, defend, and pass that faith on. That's what's called. That's the call that Jude is giving us here. Now, the reason we have to do this is because there are false teachers and false believers who will arise and create false forms of the faith. Notice in verse 4. What Jude says is this. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago. You were were chosen long ago. These guys' condemnation was written about long ago. They have secretly slipped in among you. And they are godless men who are changing the grace of God into a license for immorality. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So notice these false teachers and false believers have slipped in among the true believers in the church. This is not a call about what the world is believing. This is not a call even about what Rome has promulgated yesterday or whatever else. 
Judas saying, look, there are people, they are coming in, they're proclaiming their part of the faith, but they're actually twisting and distorting it. One thing that I always marvel at and, and I wish they would do is, I wish people who want to do this would have just an ounce of integrity and stand up and say, we're not in line with what's always been there and believe we're starting a new thing. And if you like our new thing better, come to our new thing. But see, they don't. They never have. They always try to co-opt what was there and say, we're just doing what was there before, when patently they are not. They're doing the exact opposite of what was there before. And this pattern is continued from the New Testament all the way down to the present. False teachers come in to the church, attempt to distort the faith, and twist it and make it something it was not. The Apostle Paul had warned about this in Acts chapter 20, the last time he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and will distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So notice, these wolves come in and act like they're sheep. But they're not. They're there to ravage the flock. Paul says they're going to come in and they're going to be leaders in the church, but they're going to start distorting and changing the truth and trying to make the faith something it was not. They wreak havoc, they distort it, and they do it so they can get more and more followers. Sometimes... Uh, it's simply, I mean, very often it is, hey, if we want to survive, we got to get with the program. Society's changed. We got to go along with it or else we're going to be left with nothing, which oddly is never the case because everybody who's ever done this, their group dies eventually and it goes away and the faith keeps going. But we have seen this pattern over and over again. It's been repeated through the ages. It continues to our own day. You can read 100 years ago a man named J. Gresham Machen had to, he got kicked out of Princeton Seminary for holding to the faith, and he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism because it was the, the, the liberal form of Protestant Christianity that was being born. He said, look, just have integrity. They're not two different forms of Christianity. We're the Christianity that has always been here. You're something different. Just have some integrity and admit that. You don't believe what Christians have always believed, and you don't want to practice what we've always practiced because it's not popular today. Same thing happened 100 years ago. Now, notice there are two ways that the New Testament reveals that they try to distort the faith. One of two ways. One of them is some groups try to change the essential beliefs of the faith. The essential beliefs of the faith. For example, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He's dealing in Corinth with a group that has arisen in the church, and they are distorting core Christian beliefs. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for, starting in verse 3, For what I received I also passed on to you. Do you hear how it's the same language Jude's kind of using there? You know, that, we, that this faith that's been once for all given. Paul says, I got a faith, and I passed it on to you, unchanged. And it's of first importance. This is primary. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then these people were coming along and they were saying, no, 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 what Christians have always believed is Jesus wasn't really raised. Paul's saying, that's bogus. 
Christians have always believed he was raised. Anybody in here ever heard anything like, well, he lives, you know, he, he didn't really walk out of the tomb. I mean, but the message carried on. Paul later on in that chapter says, if that's what you believe, we are of all men to be pitied. That's ridiculous. That is not good news. Okay? That's exactly what they were doing. This heresy denied the resurrection of the body, which this may sound strange to us, but the whole world back then said the whole point of death was getting out of my body. And then Christians come along and say, no, actually the point is your body's going to get raised back up and you're going to be in your body for all of eternity. Your body's going to change. Everybody says, what's the point in that? Who wants that to happen? And Paul says, the point in it is it's true. And if you lose this, you've lost everything. And so it doesn't matter whether it's popular. It doesn't matter whether people like it or not. We stand by the truth. Now these essential beliefs, this was one of them, they became known as the rule of faith in the early church. If anybody started teaching something, does it line up with the rule of faith? And it was core, essential Christian beliefs. It's not things like, you know, what is the little horn in Revelation that starts talking? That's not what we're talking about. People can disagree on that. Okay, but this is about who God is, who Jesus is, that the Trinity is the Trinity, that we are justified by what Jesus has done and not by what we do. These kinds of things, they're largely codified in the early creeds. I leaned over this morning to my granddaughter, Kaylin, who's actually been getting baptized in a couple of weeks, and she was singing along as we were singing the one song that's based on the Apostles' Creed, We Believe. And I told her, I said, this is a statement that was written thousands of years ago by Christians. All times, all places, we've managed to agree on this. We can argue about all kinds of other things, but we have agreed on those things. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. I believe He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. All of these things, and it continues on. That is what we believe, and there has been no disagreement over this. And anybody tells you otherwise is either ignorant or a liar. There is no other option, because Christians have always agreed on these things. So that's one way of doing it, is I change the belief system. The second way is I change the essential moral teachings of Christianity, usually to make it match current moral beliefs. And this is actually what Jude was dealing with. He wasn't dealing with somebody that necessarily, at least, was changing the outward doctrines of Christianity, that they were denying the Trinity or the deity of Christ. They were saying you can still live in sin. Notice what he says in verse 4. This group changes the grace of God into a license for immorality. They do not understand grace. And notice here the change is moral. They have changed grace into you can go live however you want. And in particular, the term he uses here for immorality, uh, it's a Greek word, aselgia, it occurs a lot of times in the New Testament. It denotes a lack of self-restraint and was very often used for sexual excesses. It was very much a sexual term. Because see, here was not what was popular in Christianity. This is what people did not like. We act like some of the things going on today are new. They are not new. In the time of the first century, 
Christians were these people who wouldn't get with the program. You are trying to say I ought to keep sex between a man and a woman who are married to one another. That just is not popular in the Greco-Roman culture. Everybody else is into all sorts of sexual practices. You all need to get with the program. And these people in the church Judah's writing to are saying, yes, we do need to get with the program. I know that was in the Old Testament, but times have changed, don't you know? And Judah's saying, God has not changed, don't you know? And God's law has not changed, don't you know? And what was immoral then is immoral now. And so we see this error trying to change the gospel in many places in the New Testament. We see this same error down through church history, and we see it in our own day. And actually, these two ways are not unrelated. Usually, show me a group that will change core essential Christian doctrine and beliefs. I will show you a group that pretty soon is going to start caving on moral beliefs as well. The same people who a hundred years ago said, look, it's not necessary that you believe Jesus was actually raised from the dead. It's not necessary that you believe the Bible is actually the Word of God. We can't really believe anymore that all those miracles happened in the New Testament. You can't believe in the virgin birth. This was the kind of things. These were not minor doctrines. J. Gresham Machen said it's another faith. And when you cave on this, you're going to cave. Well, guess what? You can look at all of those denominations today and guess what they're doing. They are out leading right now on moral change and they're acting as if, that's the crazy thing. They just had a, a, a vote in the United Methodist Church and if you listen to the people who wanted to embrace the modern sexual revolution, you would think that the people who believe what Christians always believed were the new guys on the block. Like they were the ones who had changed something from their life. They didn't change anything. You're doing exactly what they did in the time of Jude. And notice, to do this, to give in in this area, even in the, in the moral area, is to abandon the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And not because Brett says so. Notice what, how Jude concludes the sentence. In doing this, this changing grace of God into license for immorality, they deny Jesus Christ our sovereign and Lord. You deny those things, you are denying Jesus. There is no way to embrace this new sexual ethic, this new morality, and say I'm faithful to Jesus Christ. The two don't go together. You have denied the faith once for all delivered to the saints because what you're doing is you're creating a God of your own your own making you're worshiping him and then you're walking the way he does you can go back and read Romans 1 teaches the same thing you start making idols the next thing that happens is we start behaving in beastly ways that's what Paul teaches us now who's called to do this well certainly church leaders are called to help lead in this fight. Okay, we, we don't lead from the back. We're called to lead from the front. So for example, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, and notice the similar terms again. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Just like the faith is entrusted to the saints, Timothy, there's a deposit given to you, a good deposit, guard it. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. This is where the Gnostics got their name from because the Greek word is gnosis. To turn away from that, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. 
And Timothy, grace be with you while you do this. So it's just a reverse order of what Jude's doing. Timothy, you're going to need the gospel, but you've got to contend for the faith because there are people out there and they're trying to distort it. And when they do that, they're not just shifting the faith a little bit. They're leaving the range. They're out of the faith. And so leaders are called to do this. No man should ever be ordained to the office of elder if he does not know the faith, will not fight and defend the faith, and it does not matter if he is locked up, it does not matter if he is exiled, he has to be willing to have written on his tombstone, me contramundum, I will fight against the whole world. I will not cave on the faith. And a man who will not do that is not worthy of being an elder. Go do something else. It is not a popular position, okay? But that is what the call is. And sadly, many heresies in the church have begun from leaders. In the early 1900s, when Machen was fighting against that, it wasn't the people in the pew that were calling for this. It was a bunch of eggheads. They were up and they were reading all kinds of crazy stuff. And the people in the pew, thanks be to God at the time, were like, that's not what my Bible says. And then they start coming up with all kinds of crazy stuff, okay? We must have leaders who will fight and defend the faith, okay? And woe unto us if me and Tommy and Scott and Tony and Bobby will not fight and defend the faith. You had better know that if a wolf comes to the door, the men you got as elders had better meet him sword in hand. And if they are not, then get another flock because you cannot have wolves among the flock. But the second thing is, all believers have to contend for the faith. You can't just say, well, they're going to go do it for us. See, and we, this is important. We live in an age where we've got people who go do the fighting for us. See, that's the weird thing today. Most wars come and go now, and we're hardly affected by them at all. Somebody else goes off and does that for us. It is not that way in the Christian faith. The battle is all of ours. Notice Jude actually says, this is not just to the leaders. He says, I am urging you, you believers I'm writing to, to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. He's not writing to the leaders, he's writing to the whole church. And the faith was not just entrusted to leaders, it's entrusted to all the saints. So every Christian is responsible to know, believe, guard, and pass on the great doctrinal and moral teachings of the Christian faith. Every Christian, contramundum, are we willing to do it? Now, how do we apply this? It's one simple question. Am I contending for the faith? Now, friends, I want to remind you again, and this goes back to even what Myrtle said she felt like the Lord told her this week. Remember the riches with which it started If you're here as a believer, you you are called, you are loved, you are kept. Your life is drenched in mercy and peace and love. Remember that. Hold to that. And that means we cannot let this go. I mean, this this is beyond the goose that lays the golden egg. You've got to protect this. This is everything we've got. Do I know what I believe? Do I know why I believe it? Do I know 
essential core doctrines and practices and morals of the Christian faith. Do I understand that? Because see, you are going to hear day after day, week after week in the world, all kinds of stuff coming in and just always trying to turn you a little bit, just give it a little bit on this, okay? Jesus is a way. No, it all hangs on the way. Not a way, the way, okay? And, well, you know, we're just saying be open to other choices, you know? I mean, I know you don't want to lie, but no, there's no giving in on this, okay? So one thing I, I want to encourage you to do, we're, we're announcing, and it's kind of part of why I picked this text to teach this week, starting on Wednesday, we're starting a new blog on the website, and you can hit it each Wednesday, and we'll, we'll send you some information about it. But each week, we're going to be publishing something out of the catechism. Starting in two weeks, the catechism is already out there, but every week we're going to publish a question. Because a catechism, it's an old-sounding word, but it ju it's just a method of teaching. And it's saying this is the important stuff. Catechisms are not about bizarre little beliefs off hither and yon. This is the core doctrines of the Christian faith. During July, I'm going to teach the first four questions. And in them, we, we're not only, we didn't only give just the question and the answer, we gave all kinds of other questions to ask you to think about it, to turn around. It's kind of like applying the Word. We gave all kinds of verses so you can study it and test it on your own. Is this true? We even gave songs you can sing so you can worship along with it. I want to encourage you to do this and to look at it because it helps us understand what the gospel is. The catechism is overwhelmingly about the gospel. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. It's about how you and I are saved. In it, it's got the Apostles' Creed, the, the we believe we sang. This is a summary of what Christians believe. It's got the Ten Commandments and going through them in detail to talk about it because this is the moral teachings of the faith. They have not changed. God didn't just whip out something and say, well, you know, these seem like more or less good ideas. No, these are a reflection of who I am. And therefore, this is a reflection of the way the universe is because I made it and it's got my fingerprints all over it. Do we understand and know those things? I want to encourage you, we try to provide a lot of tools here for learning. Every week coming up with a devotion and discussion guide, trying to get this stuff out, trying to keep everything available on the website. We're not just doing that for our own health. It's actually a lot of work. We're doing it because you and I one day are going to stand in front of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to be judged based on my works. Thanks be to God. But I am going to be asked for my house standing, so to speak, rewards, did you contend for the faith? And an answer of, I didn't really know much about it. I can give you all kinds of trivia about other stuff. I was a king at Trivial Pursuit. Pop culture, knew all about. Kind of shaky on the gospel thing. Not a good answer. Not a good answer. So we are trying with everything in us to help us do that. Please use the tools. But then we're going to conclude by coming to the table because I want us to see every week when we do this, 
the table is a regular reminder of the faith. This is about what's central right here. We rehearse it over and over and over again because you can never get too familiar with it. Do you notice when professional baseball players, we're, we're going to be going to a game on uh, Friday. It's going to be the Orioles, so it might not be professional baseball this year. But, and I say that as an O's fan. I say that as an O's fan, but we're looking pretty rough this year. But when I go out there before the game, what are these professionals among the best players in the entire world, what do they spend the hour or two before the game doing? Warming up. They're getting ground balls hit to them. They're hitting balls. They're throwing. Why are they doing that? Is that just because they're bored? Because that's how the game is played. And you practice it over and over and over. Day after day after day. Week after week after week. We rehearse the faith. And then we respond in faith to what has been proclaimed. And so we're going to come to the table and do this. Now, what we're going to do this morning a little differently than we typically do is after I break the elements and we pass them out, we, or actually before we pass them out, I'm going to do the elements, we're going to recite a creed in a minute, okay? And it's just, this is all just Bible verses, basically, that I put together. It's just a string of Bible verses, because this table is for believers. So if you're not a believer, we rejoice that you are here among us. We are glad you are here to hear about the gospel, and we want to encourage you to come in and be part of the family. The water is fine, okay? But the meal is for believers. So if you read the things I'm saying in a moment and you say, "Mm, I'm not too sure about all that, then just let the meal pass in a moment when it goes by. Because to take it is a profession, this is what I believe. This is where I stand. So actually what we're going to do, we'll do it even before I I do the bread. So let's stand together. And we are going to recite this creedal statement together. And you're going to recognize some of it from 1 Corinthians 15. But as we go along, I encourage you, read and say, is this what I believe? Is this the faith that is shaping me? This is the good news that we have received in which we stand and by which we are saved if we hold it fast. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day. And that He appeared first to the women, then to Peter, and to the twelve, and then to many faithful witnesses. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is our Lord and our God. We believe that God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. We believe that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us, whom we have received from God, and therefore we are not our own. We were bought at a price, and therefore we must honor God with our bodies. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, 
If you read that and you believe that, come to the table in full assurance that your sins are forgiven. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we have sung, we have prayed, we have read, we have confessed the faith. Lord, we did not make it. It is making us. Lord, based on that faith, and who Jesus is and what he has done that has been preached to us and we have received in faith. Lord, we ask that you would receive us at your table now. In Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in just a couple of moments. As always, if you need the gluten-free, raise your hand and it will be brought to you. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. We confess that you are perfect in holiness, but we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We confess that you are perfect in love, but we have not loved you or our neighbor as we ought. We confess that you are perfect, unchanging integrity and truth. But we have deceived ourselves and others, changing you and your law to conform to the sinful desires of our age. For these sins and others, Christ's holy body was broken. He suffered in our place to bear your full wrath and to give his righteousness to us. In taking this bread, we openly confess our sins and we humbly ask you to forgive us for the sake of Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, in an age that is quick to deny sin, preferring to change the faith once for all delivered to the saints, we now openly confess our sin, the things we have done and the things we have left undone. In an age that prefers to justify itself, we confess that our only hope is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. In taking this cup, we confess that your law is true holy and good, and that our sin is false, unholy, and evil. And we confess that Christ's blood has purified us and made us holy. So now we give you thanks for the blood of Jesus Christ. 
brothers and sisters, take and drink. Would you stand with me and uh, let's close together in prayer and cry out to God along with me. Lord, we live in an age that calls evil good and good evil, that puts darkness for light and light for darkness, that is wise in its own eyes, but foolish in yours. And even in your church, people have arisen who distort the truth and embrace evil, calling it good. But you and your word remain unchanged, and you have given the unalterable faith to your people once and for all. So we now call upon you. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to guard the deposit that was entrusted to us. Enlighten our minds that we might know the truth. Stir up passion in our hearts that we might love the truth. And fortify our will so that we would live in accord with the truth. May we grow strong in your grace, full of your mercy, peace, and love, so that we can fulfill our call, receiving, keeping, and passing on the faith until Jesus returns and all is fulfilled. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And God's people say, amen. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance from him who called you and loved you and who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go in the blessing of God. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.